Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today uh, is uh, Sunday, uh, November the 6th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on in this uh, episode of the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast, we're going to bring you our Pan-African Newswire report. We have dispatches on the United Nations Climate Summit, COP27, which has begun uh, in Egypt in the resort area of Sharm el-Sheikh. A military camp in Somalia has been attacked, uh, leaving at least five people dead. We'll have details on that as well. Cameroonian President uh, Paul Bia is commemorating 40 years in office this week. And Italy is refusing to take in migrants at a port inside the country. In the second hour, we will look in detail at the recently signed peace agreement between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF in South Africa. Later, we explore the issues surrounding the East African peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Finally, we look at the COP27 summit, which has opened in Egypt. Uh, These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We're going to take our musical interlude with the orchestra Mando Negro, Kuala Kwa, Le Grand Succeed Africans. Let's listen in. Oh, 
na parcelle occupée. La juge aime la moitié, alliance la moitié, l'amour est à la
Regina Cheri, et pas une salée d'un bon camopaya, et comme il m'y boumi sasso, là où m'elle y moi m'y
Welcome back. And uh, music uh, from the Republic of Congo, uh, Brazzaville, uh, from the Orchestra Mandel Negro. Uh, and of course, uh, we're here at the Pan African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we are here, <clears throat> here on uh, Sunday, uh, November the 6th, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live. From our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program. And our lead story in the Pan-African Newswire uh, deals with the COP27 United Nations Climate uh, Conference uh, that has uh, been kicked off today uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, in North Africa. Young climate activists uh, from uh, various African nations have high demands, but low expectations uh, for the United Nations Climate Conference, which began uh, today uh, in the Egyptian coastal resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. Observers and organizers of the COP27 summit have made much of its location, branding the conference as an African COP, where uh, the positions of African countries on issues like finance for adapting to climate change or moving to renewable energy will be central to the talks. For uh, COP27 to be the African COP, uh, needs, voices, and priorities of the African people need to be reflected in the outcome of the negotiations. Uh, climate and climate activist Elizabeth Watuti uh, told the Associated Press earlier today COP27 is a chance to bring justice to the most impacted countries through global solidarity and cooperation. Analysts are pointing to sticking points between the richer and poorer nations, such as questions around whether vulnerable countries uh, should receive compensation for climate-related catastrophes, known as loss and damage in climate negotiations, as hindering progress at previous summits. Uh, some activists like uh, Watuti say that the continent should be looking to rich nations uh, for massive emission cuts and for compensation for loss and damage caused by climate catastrophes. Africa is responsible for only 3 to 4% of the global emissions, despite having 17% of the world's population, but it is more vulnerable than most places as many people, especially those outside urban centers, are less able to adapt. Financial delivery uh, is fundamental to enable the development of Africa, uh, Watuti said. 
The African population is growing rapidly and securing energy for people will be crucial to combat poverty and create opportunities for a higher quality of life. Others say African countries need to look inward as developed nations have failed to keep their promises. Hound Dat Abdurimani, an activist from the Comoros Islands, said Africa should stop relying on developed countries for funding. Why should we beg the polluters for answers and money when we know so well they will not provide it? And if they do, it will be in the form of a loan, asked uh, Abdu Rayo Hamani, uh, adding that the continent should, quote, put in adaption measures that are easy and less costly to implement, unquote, such as better management of water resources and reforesting and restoring land. Developed nations have already failed to fulfill pledges on climate change funding, including a $100 billion a year pledge that is two years past its deadline and hasn't yet been fulfilled. Watuti said that the negotiations should be about accountability and hope the conference will address the delivery of promises made but not met. Ugandan activist uh, Vanessa Nakati agreed that financing uh, from developed countries was central for the continent to achieve its aims. The uh, $100 billion promised is no longer enough. There needs to be additional finance, Nakati told uh, the international media, adding there needs to be a separate fund for loss and damage. 116 million people in Africa's coastal states and islands face level risk, and by 2050, uh, some uh, 28 years from now, African nations are projected to spend $50 billion annually on climate-related impacts, the United Nations Weather Agency said. We know what needs to be done about climate change, but what we lack is political will to actually do something, said Nkaki, adding that vulnerable communities dialing need funds to help prepare for climate-related disasters. Watuti, Nakati, and Abdul-Rio-Hamani are part of a growing number of young people in Africa and around the world who have been running grassroots projects in their respective countries and call on national and international governments to do more on climate change and biodiversity loss. Abdulio Hamani is actively involved in waste management projects. Nakati spearheads the installation of clean cook stoves and solar panels in schools in their native Uganda and Watuti leads a forest restoration project in Kenya. Although activists have long uh, been part of the conversation, many feel that they are not listened to. Increasingly, climate campaigners, particularly in Europe, have started taking drastic measures to make their arguments hurt, including throwing food at famous paintings or gluing themselves to roads to a mixed reception. Uh, There are efforts to increase the youth population, but more often than not, young people are put in meetings to fill a seat, Watuti said, For youth participation to be truly meaningful, young people need support to navigate the intricate spaces of climate negotiations. She added, young people have not caused the situation we are in, but young people are the solution. That is why participation of youth is key in high-level forums like uh, the COP27. And young climate actions from African nations, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, have high expectations of not fulfilling uh, the aforementioned demands. And in Somalia, military officers in Somalia 
say at least five people were killed and 11 others wounded when a suicide bomber detonated explosives at the front gate of a military training camp in Mogadishu on Saturday evening. The Al-Shabaab extremist group claimed responsibility for the attack at the camp that has been targeted multiple times in the past. Adawa Yusuf, uh, Chief of Somalia's Defense Forces, told state media the bomber had been pretending to be a recruit at the General Dagobadan military training camp, Wadajir District. A military officer, Abdi Rahman Ali, uh, told uh, the media that there were some fatalities for both the civilians along the street and the recruits. The camp is located near the large Turkish military base in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Cameroon's President uh, Paul Bia marked 40 years in power earlier today, but stayed out of the spotlight as questions swirled about the 89-year-old who is the only leader of the Central African countries people have ever known. Uh, thousands of his supporters gathered in the capital of Yaoundé to celebrate the anniversary, but there were only giant portraits of the absent president. Bia has not appeared in public since French President Emmanuel Macron visited in July. Decrees and photos of Bia received various diplomats are regularly posted on the president's social media accounts. Since our father took power, we live in peace. He protected us well, said Bia our supporter. Paul Ambassa uh, said this earlier today. May God keep him. However, critics of the Bia government uh, were wearing black on Sunday amid the celebrations. November 6th is considered a day of national mourning because Mr. Bia inherited a rich, prosperous, and growing country, said critic Darlene Inguevo. And he set about unraveling every sector of life and society. Corruption has made its bed in the country. So has bad governance. Paul Bia is old, and his public appearances are rare. And this is happening against the backdrop of the succession battle, he added. Bia is Africa's second longest serving leader, president of Equatorial Guinea, uh, Teodoro Obiang Nguema Mbasogo, uh, has been in power since 1979. Bia uh, was Cameroon's prime minister and became president in 1982 after his predecessor, Cameroon's first president following the country's independence from France, stepped down due to health reasons. The majority of appointments Bia made in the ensuing years were members of his own southern Bidi ethnic group, which quickly grew to dominate senior perfect positions as the prime minister's office. He survived the 1984 um, coup attempt when the country's first multi-party election was finally held in 1992. Bia bested his opposition rival by just four percentage points. In the decades since, uh, Bia's party has used everything from fraud to redistricting to expand his victories and the ruling party's legislative majorities, according to political analysts. Human rights groups have accused him of brazen strongman tactics, including torture and intimidation of his importance. Bia has faced challenges in recent years that range from a successionist movement in Cameroon's English-speaking provinces the threat in the north posed by Islamic extremists aligned with the Nigerian-based Boko Haram group. Critics point to the role uh, that corruption has played in entrenching Bia's regime, with the spoils allegedly going to his allies and government, the security forces, and the president's family. And finally, 
The captain of a charity-run migrant rescue ship refused Italian orders to leave a Sicilian port earlier today after authorities refused to let 35 of the migrants on his ship disembark. Part of the hardline directives by Italy's new far-right-led government targeting foreign flag rescue ships. The Italian premier, Giorgia Meloni, two-weeks-old government, is refusing safe port to four ships operating in the central Mediterranean that have rescued migrants at sea in distress, some as many as 16 days ago, and is allowing only those identified as vulnerable to disembark. On Sunday, Italy ordered the Humanity One uh, to vacate the port of Catiana, Catania, after dis- disembarking 144 rescued migrants, including uh, children, uh, more than uh, 100 unaccompanied minors, and people with medical emergencies. But his captain refused to comply until all survivors rescued from distress at sea have been disembarked, said the SOS Humanity, the German charity that operates the ship. The vessel remained moored at the port. Uh, Later uh, today, a second charity ship uh, arrived at uh, Catania, and the vetting process was being repeated uh, with the 572 migrants aboard the Geo Barrett ship operated by Doctors Without Borders. Families were the first to disembark. One man, Kratlin, a baby, uh, expressed his gratitude, saying, thank you, Gio Barretz, thank you. As, as he left the ship, another man in a wheelchair was carried down by Red Cross workers. Humanitarian groups and two Italian lawmakers who traveled to Sicily protested the selection process as illegal and inhuman. Italy's new interior minister, Matteo Piandosi, is targeting non-governmental organizations, which Italy has long accused of encouraging people trafficking in the central Mediterranean Sea. The group denies the claim. Free all the people, free them, Italian lawmaker Abu Bakr Suama Hora said in an emotional appeal directed at Maloney from the Humanity One rescue ship, calling her government's new policy inhuman. The passengers have faced trauma. They have faced everything they can, we can define as prolonged suffering as Sumahoro, who spent the night on the ship. And uh, you can read uh, this story in its entirety uh, by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, you can go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, all you need to do is uh, go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, 
uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. The uh, prophetic uh, Arthur Liam Love uh, track from 1967 entitled Orange Skies. Uh, the band Love from Los Angeles, California. And uh, the peace talks uh, that took place in South Africa between the Ethiopian government and uh, the TPLF rebels, uh, which were mediated uh, by uh, the African Union, Alosakun Abasanjo and uh, former president uh, of Nigeria, and also um, President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya uh, were the mediators. And there was an agreement signed uh, between uh, the Ethiopian government and the TPLF, uh, which uh, the statement that was issued uh, said uh, that the TPLF had agreed to disarm 
So uh, we will, uh, of course, continue to follow this situation uh, through the Pan-African Newswire, as well as this program, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, let's listen to uh, an interview uh, with uh, Milet Ayele, who is an Ethiopian uh, activist. Uh, let's listen to him. Talks between the Ethiopian government and rebel authorities in Tigray are continuing in South Africa. The talks are aimed at finding a peaceful resolution to the devastating two-year conflict in the north of the country. The negotiations led by the African Union began last Tuesday. It is the first formal dialogue to try to end a war that, was, that has killed many uh, thousands of people, really, and unleashed a desperate humanitarian crisis in northern Ethiopia. South Africa had initially said the talks being held in Pretoria will run until Sunday. However, the AU now says that there is no date limitation uh, that's been put on the talks. Some diplomats have speculated that the talks will likely continue until Tuesday since the negotiations began. Intense fighting has continued unabated in Tigray. Ethiopian federal forces backed by the Eritrean army and regional forces have been waging artillery bombardments and airstrikes against rebel positions and they've reportedly captured a string of towns from the rebels, diplomatic efforts to try and bring the government and the rebels to the negotiating table, gathered pace after combat resumed in late August, ending a five-month truce that had allowed limited amounts of aid into Tigray. Um, we speak now to Ethiopian independent researcher, and journalist uh, Mayet Ayele Baeto, who uh, joins us from The Hague in the Netherlands. A very good evening to you, and thank you so much for speaking to us. So, uh, firstly, let me just get your opinion on uh, the talks, um, the mediators. Uh, there have been uh, various commentators who have expressed their opinion about the suitability of some and just the conditions under which the talks are taking place. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Uh, well, uh, I mean, this is the African Union uh, laid peace talk on Ethiopia that's happening in Pretoria. Although that uh, the very meaning of the African Union laid peace talk uh, has been... Uh, uh, has been kind of in question because of the various actors involved in this peace talk. I would like to remain uh, positive or optimist in the result of uh, uh, this peace talk. We have seen uh, from the or if it really sticks to the original plan to uh, the African perspective, meaning inserting that African solutions to African problems. Uh, then I think it will uh, bring uh, a positive result. We have seen that. Uh, uh, it's not just an abstract what I'm saying. Uh, we have seen uh, the various non-African actors who first said that uh, they have interest, their interest groups, uh, namely the U.S., the European Union, and international organizations, and then uh, the U.S. said it has, it's playing a major role in this peace talk. It has said it through its U.N. ambassador, uh, and then it has been uh, releasing press briefing that seems also to be uh, threatening a, a sovereign country. But this is not the first time that U.S. has done this. 
Uh, it has done it also during the dispute between Ethiopia and the downstream countries uh, related to the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam, where it appeared to be first an observer and then mediator. Uh, so this is uh, this is not something new. Regardless, for really for two reasons, I I I, I insist. As an African, not only as an Ethiopian, but as an African citizen, that this will bring a positive result. One, uh, because as an African citizen, this is uh, uh, this is something that the African Union organization, supposedly the biggest Pan-African organization, taking matters into uh, its own uh, hands and trying to solve conflict. So I, I do hope that it, it will bring a solution, that it will demonstrate that the, that institution is able to do this. But also, as an Ethiopian, uh, uh, what we have facing or what we have been facing, facing for the past two years uh, is, is painful, and uh, uh, it's in every interest of the Ethiopian people that this will come to an end. So. I do remain really optimistic that, the, I mean, regardless of the various things and non-African actors in this field. Yeah, I, I do hope. All right. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, voiced hope that the peace could be achieved without making any direct reference to the talks underway in Pretoria. But he said that they are trying to convince the uh, Tigrayan People's Liberation Front to respect the law of the land, to respect the constitution, he said, and act as one state in Ethiopia. Um, but what should the government itself commit to in turn? I think I'm not speaking for the government, but from from what we have seen so far, from all you know the various of events that have happened, uh, which is nearly, by the way, in in over two days, this conflict since it started, it, it will be uh, two years, and it started when TPLF actually atta attacked. It's a premeditated attack. It's not my word. It's a TPLF official who said this few days after the attack happened, November, after November 4 attack, so in 2020. Now, uh, the Ethiopian government has showed already its concession that whatever happens, it should be within the framework of the, you know, the constitution of the, uh, uh, the Ethiopian uh, government. And, I mean, uh, take any country, who would really sit uh, with a rebel group or with an armed group like we call uh, call them whatever you want, but who will sit with, with a group, with an armed group that attacked its uh, its national defense force? None of them, those you know, uh, people who are trying to interfere will do that. Uh, so, uh, and also it's it's in the, uh, under it's the, uh, the responsibility of the Ethiopian government to uh, to keep uh, sovereign territory and to protect also the security, the peace and security of the country, the stability of the country. It's the Ethiopian government's responsibility, and that includes the people of Tigray as well. So it has showed that regardless of what's happening, that it, uh, they would like to achieve peace, and they are sitting now at the negotiation table under, you know, the African Union-led uh, 
peace envoy led by uh, Olsengo Obasanjo. And I think, it, yeah, it has taken a major step in terms of, you know, uh, concessions in terms of what it is supposed to do. I think it has went extra mile to keep uh, its people, to keep that peace and security of the people. That includes, I repeat mm, again, right. the people of Sugrat. Mahriette, it's a pity we've run out of time because I did want to point out that there have been reports uh, endorsed by the UN of human rights abuses on both sides. I would have loved to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, thank you very much for your time, though. And uh, that was uh, activist Malat Ayele, uh, who was based uh, in Europe doing a lot of uh, research and uh, advocacy uh, in regard to the Ethiopian struggle as well as Pan-Africanism. And uh, right now we want to hear from the uh, foreign minister of the Republic of South Africa, where the talks uh, between the uh, Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the TPLF uh, rebels uh, was held in, uh, the talks were held in Pretoria. And of course, uh, they were opened uh, by uh, the uh, foreign minister, uh, Dr. Nalede Pandor. Let's, let's, uh, let's take you to this story now. We understand that Minister Nalede Pandor is giving a briefing about the peace talks. Of course, you know that they've been taking place. Let's take a listen in. Extremely reluctant. And my response to the African Union was, hmm, I have to think about it. And after I've thought about it, I have to approach President Ramaphosa. When I spoke to President Ramaphosa, he said, of course, Minister, we cannot decline. It is a duty that South Africa must assume and undertake, right up to the logical conclusion of peace. So colleagues have to thank President Ramaphosa because I was very nervous. <laughs> Allow me to welcome on behalf of the people and the government of South Africa the successful negotiation of this cessation of hostilities agreement between the federal government of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. We extend our congratulations to the leaders on both sides. For us, this agreement signals a commitment to ending the use of force to settle differences and disputes and confirms the correctness of our own country's principled policy position that political differences are best resolved through meaningful dialogue and diplomacy. This agreement also underscores the importance that the leaders on both sides have attached to the lives of their people including to the fighting forces, to their families, to women in their communities, as well as to the suffering children of war. The message that comes out of these talks is clear. There are no winners in war, and wars do not solve problems. Invariably, the underlying reasons for conflict will persist unless they are resolved through dialogue. The use of force serves to destroy lives, livelihoods, infrastructure, and to merely prolong human suffering. 
This is why, as South Africa, we've always urged the African Union that as a continent, we must give much more focused attention to preventative interventions, structures, and mechanisms. Peace building is much more difficult than waging a war. The real heroes are those who work toward building peace and sustaining it. We therefore humbly call on the leaders of both sides to continue to work toward maintaining this peace through implementing the agreement in full as they have committed to do in front of us. The engagement to build stability, to sustain peace, must continue in Ethiopia and lead to the securing of an enduring peace. We are honored as South Africa to have been the host for these talks and we are keen to provide further support to the African Union working closely with the facilitation team to ensure that peace is indeed maintained in our sister country, Ethiopia. It is absolutely imperative that we thank the facilitators and the observers for the hard work that has been undertaken. We thank His Excellency, President Olusegun Obasanjo, His Excellency, former President Uhuru Kenyatta, and Her Excellency, former Deputy President Pumzilem Lambungunuka. We also thank colleagues of the African Union Commission and all the observers, as well as the resource personnel who have helped steer the talks. It is our hope as the people and government of South Africa that we are very soon going to be enjoying a celebration with the people of Ethiopia and indeed with all the people of Africa because this agreement offers the hope that it is possible that as Africans we can silence the guns throughout the continent. Our president, President Ramaphosa, has directed me to congratulate all of you and to confirm his government and our country's readiness to continue playing any positive role that you may wish us to play. We are heartily encouraged by this example and we are indeed really privileged and honored that this first sign that our path, our walk to silencing the guns is a, probably a successful one. We are absolutely privileged that that path and walk has begun here in South Africa. I thank you, moderator. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Minister. Excellencies, uh, President Ubasanjo, President Uhuru Kenyatta, Madam Pumzile. This brings us to one of the most important and critical points in today's uh, signing ceremony. The parties, Excellencies, have agreed to issue a joint statement 
and as a demonstration of their commitment and the bonds that bind them as brothers and sisters, it's a two-page document with 12 paragraphs. They have divided them evenly, and we'll have Ambassador Redwan Rameto read the first part of the joint statement, and that will be followed by Mr. Getashu Reda, which will bring us to the signing ceremony. So without further ado, I would like to call on Ambassador Redwan for the first part of the joint statement between the government of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Ambassador, over to you, please. Thank you, Dr. Ba. In fact, I offered to get out to read the first page, but uh, he delegated me to begin, so I will humbly begin reading. Joint statement between the government of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF. As per Article 3 of the Agreement for Lasting Peace and Permanent Cessation of Hostilities, the representatives of the Government of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the TPLF have agreed to announce to the people of Ethiopia and the rest of the world that after 10 days of intensive negotiations have concluded a peace agreement. Second, we've agreed to permanently silence the guns and end the two years of conflict in northern Ethiopia. Three, the conflict has brought a tragic degree of loss of lives and livelihoods, and it is in the interest of the entire people of Ethiopia to leave the chapter of conflict behind and live in peace and harmony. Fourth, it is fundamental that we reaffirmed our commitment to safeguarding the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ethiopia into upholding the constitution of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Thus, Ethiopia has only Welcome back. And uh, that was um, the proceedings uh, at the conclusion of the peace talks. A uh, joint statement was issued uh, by the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Uh, the statement uh, indicated that they wanted to silence the guns and uh, to bring about a succession of hostilities. So this agreement uh, is going to be monitored uh, very closely uh, by the Pan-African Newswire. I want to bring you another report um, on um, a panel discussion uh, in regard to the implications of this agreement. Ethiopia's government and rebel forces in northern Tigray have agreed to end hostilities, but this isn't the first ceasefire in the two-year conflict. So what are the terms of the deal and will it last? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Fully Batibo. After 10 days of peace talks in South Africa, a surprise deal has been reached to stop Ethiopia's civil war in Tigray. Up to half a million people have died from violence and starvation during the conflict. Hundreds of thousands have been forced from their homes and 9 million urgently need food. Well, now the Ethiopian government and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, have agreed to what they call a permanent cessation of hostilities. The African Union mediated the talks led by former Nigerian President Olusinjo Obasanjo and former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. <laughs> 
Today is the beginning of a new dawn for Ethiopia, for the Horn of Africa, and indeed for Africa as a whole. Let me hasten to thank God for this new dawn. We are seeing in practice and actualization what we have tried to achieve for ourselves over the years, and that is African solution for African problems. Let's remind you how the war started. Ethnic Tigrayans dominated Ethiopian politics for nearly 30 years until Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018. Two years later, he ordered a military operation against the TPLF. He accused the group of attacking military bases and holding an unauthorized regional election. Northern Tigray has been under blockade for 17 months with aid restricted and internet and phone services blocked. Both sides have been accused of violating human rights. Now, the last ceasefire signed in August broke down and Ethiopian government forces were closing in on Tigray's regional capital, Mekele. That was just before the latest round of talks. After this ceasefire was announced, Ethiopia's prime minister in a statement said, the agreement signed today in South Africa is monumental in moving Ethiopia forward. Our commitment to peace remains steadfast. Now, the TPLF says the ceasefire is not only a relief to the people of Tigray, but to all of Ethiopia. As far as both parts are concerned, we have made painful concessions because addressing the pains of our people is far more important than the kinds of concessions we have made. Yes, we have made concessions because we have to build trust and we have to make sure that every one of us builds on that trust. Let's now bring in our guests in Addis Ababa, Hayredin Tezira, a member of the Ethiopian Parliament and Assistant Professor of Social Anthropology at Addis Ababa University. In Amsterdam, Gebre Kistos Gebre Selassie, founder and chief editor of Tagat.com, that's the website documenting the war in Tigray. And in London, Martin Plout, a senior research fellow at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. Gentlemen, a warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us today on Inside Story. Before we get into the details of this agreement signed uh, by the Ethiopian government and the TPLF, I want to get your initial reaction first to this ceasefire. Let me start with you, Hayreddin, in Addis Ababa. How do you view this agreement? Will this ceasefire last? Yeah, the, the moment I heard the agreement launched in Pretoria, I was very happy, and as and any part of Ethiopia, and as, as any citizen of Ethiopia, I wish Ethiopia to be very peaceful and prosperous, and that blood, uh, bloody conflict in the north was dragging us behind. It is a, it's a conflict between brothers. So uh, the moment I heard it, it was, you know, it was, you know, uh, emotional for me, moving, mm. and I'm very happy. And for me and for other Ethiopians, I, I believe this is, uh, it, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the agreement is not indicating the winning of one or another party. Rather, it, Ethiopia, brothers, one family wins out of the agreement. But that how, is committed, reaction. how committed is the Ethiopian government to the agreement? You know, uh, according to my understanding, and the, 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 immediately after the agreement, the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said, the government is very committed. You know, if you can remember, and if viewers even can remember, the Ethiopian government one, time and again, you know, 
said that it wanted to end the conflict through peaceful dialogue, unilaterally declared for humanitarian access previously, and you know the commitment was observed even before the territorial agreement. Then the moment and after the agreement, the Ethiopian government demand, according to my understanding, is fully addressed. Mm. It, you know, it raised that you know the issue was previously and the factors that you know triggered the war seems addressed very well in the agreement. Okay. So no need to wait. Rather, the spirit and letter of the agreement should be implemented. That is the reaction from the prime minister and his government as well. Gabriel Christos, this deal has come as a surprise to many because there was not a lot of optimism going into the talks in South Africa. What is your reaction to this agreement? And do you think this ceasefire, unlike the previous one, will last? I think uh, it is positive that there is at least, you know, uh, a publicly stated uh, commitment for peace or a desire for peace. Um, whether it will last uh, is uh, uh, something I am not so, um, uh, let's say, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, and I say that because um, the uh, track record of the African Union, the uh, Ethiopian uh, regime uh, are not really that good. The regime uh, really thrives on deception. So that doesn't give me so much hope. And the African Union uh, does not have really a strong mechanism, you know, to uh, enforce this, to uh, uh, you know, oversee this process. And I would like to add this, that I think this is uh, the Tigrayan community now feels that this was really an unfair uh, 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 agreement that has been really uh, uh, kind of like, uh, demanded a lot of concessions on the mm. part of the grant. At the start of the negotiations, Martin, 10 days ago, the conflict was intensifying and the Ethiopian government and its Eritrean allies were closing in on Mekele, the regional capital of Tigray. What do you think led to this breakthrough and is this the end point, do you think? Well, I think there, there are two things to say. The first is both sides were under intense pressure the uh, Tigrayans were certainly uh, under intense pressure because the Eritrean and Ethiopian forces were deep inside their territory, uh, but they were not close to uh, Mekele. Mm. They were actually blocked quite a distance from Mekele and were held and being ambushed all the time on the, the B-30, which was called the Highway to Hell. So it, it wasn't as if the, the Tigrayans were in an impossible position, but they were in an extremely difficult position. But they made a, the quite a lot hand, of concessions. The, uh, how, how do you explain them making they the concessions indeed. they made? Well, let me just put, put, give you the, the difficulty that the Ethiopians were under. Mm. Not only were they losing a lot of men, but also they were under intense financial pressure because the International Monetary Fund made it clear they would not extend loans to Ethiopia, which is down to about a month's worth of foreign exchange. They've spent hugely on weapons for this war. And so they were under intense pressure as well. And it's because both sides were under pressure that the, it was possible to get some kind of agreement, I think. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel Kisto said a moment ago that uh, the, the Ethiopian regime has a, a track record that's not really good, that they, they're deceptive in, in his words. Do you think there is enough trust today between the two sides that could make the ceasefire last? I think there's very little trust, but what you need is, uh, you know, confidence building measures. And, you know, you can ask yourself one simple question. Have the borders of Tigray been opened? Mm. Have the World Food Programme's trucks begun moving today? There's no reason why they have to wait any further. The, the agreement's been initialed. 
They should be moving today. The second question is this. Will the Ethiopian and the Eritrean governments allow reporters from Al Jazeera, from other organizations, to go up to the front and report on what is going on? Right. That would be hugely important in allowing people to say, this is what's happening with some confidence. All right. Well, let's take a closer look now at the significant parts of this agreement. The TPLF, under this deal, must enter a permanent ceasefire with government forces and disarm. Tigray will be restored as a region under Ethiopia's federal system. Elections held in Tigray in 2020 that weren't recognized by Ethiopia's government will be considered void, and a new government for the region will be established. Let me bring you back in, uh, Kaira Dean, in Addis Ababa. Martin raised an important point there, and that is an important question, and that is whether the borders of Tigray will be open. When will aid return to Tigray? When will all the obstacles to transport of food and medicine be lifted? You know, I don't know why, uh, in what mechanism that Martin Pullout uh, examined or uh, came to that kind of conclusion. You know, according to my understanding, uh, there was a war and uh, for long, for two years in that area. But still, uh, after the control of some areas by Ethiopian National Defense Force, uh, I can understand that, and based on my information, close information and assessment into the development in the, in the area, there is a you know, smooth uh, movement of uh, humanitarian food and other, other services. Mm. And even today, as of today, I can hear in, in those liberated areas, services, electricity and telecommunication have been restored by the government. The issue is, as you have already mentioned in the agreement, whether the government has absolute power in that area. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Most of the services are delivered by the government institutions, the federal government institutions. If the, gov the, the, the federal government jurisdiction have not been very well upheld in that area, it would be you know, very difficult for the state, the central government, to deliver this kind of services into area. Okay, give but a I don't agree, and I will not agree, okay. agree that Deliberately, there will not be a siege and a blockade by the, the federal government. I think this kind of accusation seems now working as this spirit of peace is now, you know, okay. you know overshadow, overshadowing the scene now. Geber Christus, Hyradine uh, says the government has been falsely accused of, of blockading uh, uh, the, the Tigray region. What do you know is happening right now? Uh, to the extent of your knowledge in the region, is aid and, uh, coming in? Are services being restored, as Hyradine uh, says? No, that's an absolute lie. And uh, lie and deception have been part of the, uh, not only the government, but also the people that speak, you know, uh, for, for the government. And this is just what we hear now today. We have families, for example, in the areas that these days are liberated. Again, this is not liberation, according to Tigran. You don't liberate people that didn't ask for that. But there is no electricity, there's no uh, internet, there's nothing, there's no aid. Uh, but again, you know, they are telling us that our people are eating food while they are not eating. So I think like what Martin said before, we haven't seen anything yet since the signing of the agreement. And that kind of, that kind of points, you know, something positive coming, uh, in the coming days ahead. But I think let me just go back a little bit and say, you know, one of the, um, injustice, uh, that the grand feel at this moment is that, you know, what is, uh, normally not negotiable. Mm. like uh, humanitarian aid, uh, restoration of services, uh, uh, genocide, blockade, all these shouldn't have been allowed, but they have been used, you know, to coerce the grand 
to uh, co uh, to concede many things if they want to get, you know, this, for example, humanitarian aid. Uh, this has been part of the negotiation. That's why it doesn't feel right from the uh, from the get go. Uh, and this resentment among Tigrayans now, if social media is an indication, we don't know about the people in Tigray because they have no voice at this moment. Mm. But those that are outside, there is a huge dis uh, disappointment, resentment, and they feel that that Tigrayans. Uh, who have been subjected to genocide will not get justice and reparation because of this uh, arrangement that has been created now. Martin, a huge really disappointment is, from the Tigrayans apparently uh, at this agreement. So where does it leave it? I mean, it sounds like it's not going to last very long. Well, I hope it does. I mean, this has been a long time in the making and there's been huge international pressure the Americans have played a big role in trying to get this through. The African Union, as you mentioned, has worked extremely hard to make this happen. And there's no reason why it shouldn't work. Mm. Uh, I mean, as I said, there are good reasons why both sides would want to have a, a, a resolution. But, you know, it, it, you just need some measures of goodwill which show that there's genuine goodwill on both sides. Let a, an, a, a United Nations flight take off tomorrow with the camera crews international camera crew on it and broadcast the situation from Michele tomorrow. That would change the atmosphere. It's not difficult to do. It could be done at a, at a switch you know, uh, by, by, the Amer by Prime Minister Abbey. All he has to do is say, yes, they can go. And the United Nations uh, flights would take off. Hiradine, There's no reason why it can't happen. Hyredine, uh, will the Prime Minister, will the Ethiopian government make this goodwill gesture? You know, I don't know whether this kind of proposal from Martin can check, can, can, can counter check and check whether the argument is workable or not. This is a very simple event, by the way. We have to appreciate the overall framework that agreed by the parties and the intention of both parties demonstrating. You know, I mean, I think everyone agrees. Agree both, uh, everyone agrees both, and welcomes. Uh, and my brother. Yeah, everyone yes. agrees, I think, on, on uh, the, the framework and everyone welcomes the deal. The question now is whether what was agreed will be implemented. You know, I think what kind of implementation is mentioned in the detail, that will be, will be seen very soon. We will see, you know, that, you know, there is also a declaration of agreement that's mentioned in the agreement. Then there are also observers that can uh, check and countercheck whether it is workable or not. Mm. For me, for instance, according to my brother from Amsterdam, he said that Grants are showing resentment. The Tigrayans are not only living in Tigray region, they are living in Addis Ababa, they are living in different parts of Ethiopia, they are very happy. You know, they want to see their region, their, their families to be peaceful. So we have to appreciate that. The diaspora should also come to, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, appreciate this kind of agreement. You know, elongating the war, elongating the spirit of hatredness cannot help us more. Let's appreciate, let's grasp this opportunity and show a kind of commitment to implementation. For me, the implementation cannot be checked by one, one cameraman or one, one journalist to go there and broadcast this guy. This is a very simple situation. We'll see it very soon. Let's, let's give time to prove this right or wrong. Gabriel Christos, your response. You know, I mean, um, well, this is very simple, for example. You know, it's a good uh, uh, gesture, uh, like uh, uh, allowing journalists, allowing aid to flow immediately would uh, signal a good thing. But what my uh, what your guest from Addis is saying is really simply, you know, um, well, let's just, you know, be good. No, there should be um, justice for what has happened. You just don't let crimes of this magnitude, you know, uh, go free. 
But uh, uh, the, crimes, any, uh, the uh, crimes, by the way, uh, according to the United Nations, Gebrekistos, were committed by both sides, not just the Ethiopian government forces, but also by the Tigrayan forces. Oh, no, that, that's not the same. That, that's just crimes, and there is a genocide. That's a different type of crime. Those, uh, those you know, crimes, you know, conflict, there will be crimes. Uh, so also if the Tigrayans have committed crimes, be, they should be uh, uh, held accountable. So we're not really saying only, uh, you know, uh, the forces, uh, the allied forces should be held. Mm. There, but there should be a mechanism, a transparent, trustworthy mechanism, and something that is really uh, defeating the, the magnitude of the crime that has been committed in Tigray. Many people kind of miss this, but the investigation also puts, you know, the magnitude of the crimes on the Ethiopian regime and its allies, not on the Tigrayan force. Okay, before I bring Martin back into the conversation, I just want to ask you, Gabriel Christos, we talked about goodwill gestures. What about uh, the disarmament of the TPLF? That's part of the agreement, the TPLF disarming. When, when can we expect that to happen? That is something that's extremely difficult for Tigrayans because we uh, believe as Tigrayans that only the, uh, we, we don't consider it TPLF. That's already the problem there. It calls the Tigrayan forces, which we call the Tigrayan defense forces, as TPLF forces. They are not TPLF forces. They are, the Tigrayans are not fighting for TPLF. They are fighting for their people, for their uh, uh, institution of government. And that's the problem, well, you know, with this. And this are and what, under what conditions? This is it's something... A sovereign state. We don't have a parallel army in a given state. Let me wait. The parallel army has committed genocide upon us. It's not, it's not our army. And it has allowed a foreign army, Eritrean army, to come... No, no, it's an Ethiopian army. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't... Uh, by the way, we should be abided by the treaty and the letters of no, the agreement, my friend. Let me finish. Ethiopia let me, needs peace. Let me finish. This kind of rhetoric, let this me, kind of hatred speech must finish. end. And our bra we are brothers and friends please. and fathers and sisters. Please, we need please, peace in Ethiopia. Please, we need peace in Tigray. We need in, different, in Afar. We need peace in, in every part of Ethiopia. Okay. Let's just finish your thought really quickly. Then are the days that kind of conversation should end now. Okay, just finish your thought really quickly before I bring back Martin back in. So this is what I mean. This, uh, uh, Tigrayan forces, thus, these are the only people that protect the Tigrayan uh, society. Okay. And their disarmament is a very serious issue for Tigrayans. I don't think how it's going to work. Right. But uh, we, uh, we, we feel like that's not really right. Okay, Martin, as you can hear there, there's still quite a lot of animosity you know, from the two sides, if we just judge from this conversation between these two gentlemen, what happens next as far as this agreement is concerned? And we talked about Tigray, uh, the TPLF, and the Ethiopian government forces, but we haven't talked about Eritrea's role in this. Eritrean forces were, of course, fighting alongside the Ethiopian government forces. Will the Eritreans uh, and President Isaiah Safawerki accept this deal and abide by it, you think? Well, that's a critical question. And, you know, it was uh, about a year ago, uh, Prime Minister Abiy of Ethiopia said that he had asked the Eritreans to leave, but they never left. So how that he's going to ensure that they do leave is difficult. They didn't participate in these talks, mm. and they're not mentioned at all in the agreement. The only thing that it is says is that it, is, it prevents the use of proxies to destabilize the other party or collusion with any external force hostile to either party. That's a sort of complicated way of saying the Eritreans.
Right. But how they're going to ensure that they leave is very difficult because don't forget that a lot of Ethiopian troops were sent up north to Eritrea to attack the Tigrayans from the north. What's going to happen to them? And what about the Somali forces mm -hmm. who were also brought in at the beginning of this war? When are they going to be allowed to go home? Mm -hmm. There are many questions and only 10 monitors have been established in this whole process. Yeah. It's a very fragile system. And what about the fate of the disputed Western Tigray region, which is part of Tigray but was captured by Amhara forces at the beginning of the conflict? Absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the only thing that, that really applies to that is the two-page agreement which was signed where they said that they uphold the constitution of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Now, that constitution recognizes that Western Tigray as part of Tigray. Mm. Now, if they're going to abide by the letter of this, then that should be returned to Tigray. But I'd be interested to hear what the uh, colleague in uh, Addis Ababa has to say about that. Okay. Hayredin uh, in Addis Ababa, what do you have to say to that? And especially the question of when will Eritrean forces leave Ethiopia? From to my knowledge, and as an academic, and I, I, as an academic who wants this data to to, 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 to narrate and to talk, the existence of Eritrean army, the involvement of Eritrean army in the northern conflict is not proved yet. That doesn't, you know, the Ethiopian government doesn't say, doesn't say about that. The Eritrean government doesn't say about that. Only I can hear from the TPLF side from the, some inter, international community or Western powers. So for this purpose, since I don't have any credible information about the existence of Eritrea, okay. I don't say anything about it. Regarding other issues, and uh, yeah, regarding other, other issues especially, the issue of Western, uh, as you call it, you know, the you know, controversial lands yes. and controversial areas. The agreement clearly stipulates that the Ethiopian constitution will address the issue. This doesn't mean that the Ethiopian constitution, you know, by the way, the Ethiopian Federal Democratic Republic constitution doesn't state anything about the internal boundaries of Ethiopian federal constituencies. Okay. Okay. So that will need kind of further uh, dialogue, further, further, further sitting dialogue. and the discussion. Okay. That will be addressed hopefully with through the constitutional mechanisms okay, and other I'll, mechanisms. I'll let, I'll, I'll let uh, Gabriel Kestos respond uh, on, on the point that there is no proof that Eritrean forces are in northern Tigray. Uh, and, and also ask you, uh, Gabriel Kestos, about the next step. There are clearly divisions, and the ceasefire is not going to solve them. What should happen next? I don't know what to say, you know, to uh, your guests from Addis. Uh, basic practice. This is what we mean, you know. Already here we see the denial of freely established facts. You know, this is like even his government, he calls his, uh, the uh, Abiy regime his government, has admitted that Eritrean forces are in Ethiopia. This is just a, it's just a pu public uh, knowledge. And he says he doesn't know about it. Why would we believe any word that uh, he says? It's just difficult, you know. Um, as far as, you know, going forward, I think uh, what I uh, believe is that um, this was really kind of like a faith-saving uh, uh, kind of agreement. Okay. Uh, and it was just like the African Union has an interest to, you know, kind of uh, save its uh, name. Okay. Uh, the United States first to do something. But I think the real issues haven't been addressed. Okay. The thing is that the grand questions are, were political. 
And now they yeah, have yeah, made... We, let's accept the opportunity. Let's accept this agreement, my friend. Okay. Gentlemen, if we are very hopeful, gen if we are gentlemen, very, please. very interested to have peaceful in this Ethiopia, Clearly, part there's of the still part of so Ethiopia, many issues. My friend, it's better to accept and to address. To, to use gentlemen, this opportunity thank you so much. Clearly, the there's still and so many issues to address and so many questions that hopefully we'll get to discuss further here on Al Jazeera. We've run out of time for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Khairuddin Tizira, Gebre Christos, Gebre Selassie, and Martin Plout. Thank you very much. And thank you, too, for watching. You can always watch this program again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Story. You can, of course, also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Fully Back to and Holkin in Doha, thanks for watching. Bye for now. Welcome back, and uh, that was a discussion and a debate on uh, the internal situation uh, in the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, and uh, we have, of course, been following uh, incessantly uh, the war uh, in uh, Tigray, the uh, spillover effects in Afaris and uh, Amhar, uh, regions of the country, the refugee crisis, uh, in Eastern Sudan and other um, variables involved uh, in the current situation in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. All you have to do is read the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Irma Thomas uh, from uh, New Orleans, the Southern Soul Sound of Irma Thomas uh, with the track and title, Time is on My Side. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, November the 6th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Now we want to move into a report on the current situation in Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, the accusations between Rwanda and the DRC governments. Uh, Let's listen in. The Democratic Republic of Congo has expelled the Rwandan ambassador. It accuses Kigali of supporting rebels in the east. Fighting has displaced thousands of people. So why has it been difficult to end the conflict? Is it time for a new approach? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Sahil Rahman. Relations between Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda have hit a new low. The Congolese government has expelled the Rwandan ambassador. It's long accused Kigali of supporting the M23 rebel group in the North Kivu province in the east. Fighting between rebels and the Congolese army has intensified in the past few months, with fighters capturing two towns last week. The United Nations has urged M23 to disarm unconditionally. In August, a UN report found evidence of Rwanda's military supporting the rebels, but the Rwandan government has repeatedly denied the accusations. The conflict has displaced nearly 40,000 people in a week. It was one o'clock in the morning when we heard gunshots. Afterwards, we fled because the situation was getting so bad. The M23 fighters were raining bullets all over our village. That's why we had to escape, to stay alive. We want the authorities to find us somewhere to live. We've got nothing to eat because we fled with nothing. And here we are with the children on the road. The conflict has triggered protests in the eastern Congolese city of Goma and capital of North Kivu province. People denounced the presidents of Rwanda and Uganda, which is also accused of supporting M23 rebels. And some called for Russia's help, saying years of Western interventions have failed them. We need Putin here in Congo because we are disappointed with the United States. For 60 years, we have been in the U.S., but there's no infrastructure. The army is still what it is today, an infiltrated army. We are suffering more, and it's because of war of M23. And uh, we know we have one country who supports support them, is Rwanda. So now we are protesting because of uh, because of our neighbours, Rwanda, yes. The March 23 movement, or M23 as it's known, as the Congolese Revolutionary Army. It's a rebel military group based in the eastern areas of Democratic Republic of Congo, mainly in the province of North Kivu. Its leadership is made up of members of the Tutsi ethnic group. They say their aim is to fight enemy groups founded by Hutus who fled Rwanda after the 1994 genocide. The rebels merged with the Congolese army under a 2009 peace deal, but in 2012 they said the agreement had not been upheld and broke away, naming their group M23. More than 120 other rebel groups operate in the region. 
Well, let's bring in our guests in the Rwandan capital Kigali as Gatete Nedengabo, a lawyer and political analyst. In London, Okito Tongomo, president of the Congolese exiled government. And in Tilburg, in the Netherlands, is Felix Dahinda, a researcher on conflict, peace and justice in Africa's Great Lakes region. A warm welcome to all of my guests. Uh, can I come first to you, Felix, in Tilburg in the Netherlands, to get a neutral view? What we've seen are demonstrations against Rwanda by people in Congo's city of Goma. I mean, why are these demonstrations any different from those before them? I'm not quite sure whether I would say that they are very different. You have quite a lot of anti-Rwanda sentiments in Eastern DRC in Goma particularly, which is very close, but also in other cities in Eastern DRC. Uh, we remember already some we had in early June. Um, so for the last couple of years, we had quite a number of strong demonstrations. Uh, all of those were either linked to armed um, kind of activities going on. We have had uh, activities uh, opposing uh, the M23 to the Congolese government with allegations, of course, of uh, Rwanda supporting M23. So in the past as well, so talking about, for example, in 2012, mm. 13. So these are not very different. I guess I, I look at this rather as another horrific cycle of violence with, of course, uh, uh, devastating consequences for okay. the civilian population. Well, let's go to London then and to Okita Tongomo. I mean, if it is such another cycle of violence, uh, Mr. Tongomo, how bad is the situation in the east of Congo to the people that you're talking to there right now? Thank you so much, Robert. I think it is a very necessary case for us to mention. It's a very tragic, difficult time for us Congolese people. We've been so kind and they welcome foreigners in our country. The Rwandese, we welcome them, and we've got a massive and a big majority of Rwandese citizens who are really are willing to go back to Rwanda. They live in Congo, where they find a peaceful place to stay. We welcome generation of them. And uh, what is happening now, the Rwandese government, especially Paul Kagame, is using the British influence, the Commonwealth influence, because they're a member of the British Army. Now they're training their people in the United Kingdom. They are using those people now to kill ordinary citizens in Congo. Speaking now, more than 40,000 people have displaced from the house. They're going to neighbor country or some people live in a forest at the moment. Young people can't go to school. We see criminal movement growing up by a small group of people who call themselves M23. The Rwandese government, fully supported by Paul Kagame and the Rwandese army, they've been in the center of the court killing ordinary Congolese people. And I'm very thankful for this message this afternoon. I believe that British people, and the people around the globe will know that Rwanda is using the influence and the power given by British for them to be member of the Commonwealth to kill civilians. And the weak country has got much stable political movement at the moment. Okay, Mr. My country Tongo, but let, me, let me just stop you there and allow our, our guest in Kigali, uh, Gatete Naringabo, to come in there. You've heard what our guest uh, in London has said, that uh, this is all inspired and supported by the British, and it's all Paul Kagame's fault. How do you respond Right, so that is speculation. I, want, I would rather not respond to that. It's speculation. And this type of rhetoric is what is fueling these uh, demonstrations that you, that you mentioned, you alluded to earlier. Uh, and also when this gentleman says that the DRC was welcoming to Rwandan refugees, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's being disingenuous. The M23 are not Rwandan, and nobody welcomes them. They, they are Congolese. They live on their ancestral land in the DRC. 
they lived on this land for more than four centuries, and they are older than Congo itself as a country. This M23 group, they are not Rwandans. They may speak in Rwanda, they may look like Rwandans, but when the borders were being divided in 1885, they suddenly found themselves as part of the Congolese country. They are not Rwandans. They speak in Rwanda, they may look Rwandan, but they are Congolese. Now, this amalgam of saying that we welcome refugees, these people were there much, much earlier. They were as early as any other indigenous community in, the, in that eastern part of the DRC. And they are fighting today because, they, because their, their community has struggled to be accepted okay. by the likes of my colleagues who are speaking now and calling them refugees. That's why their families have fled and they have lived in refugee camps in Rwanda and Uganda for three decades now. Three decades of demanding to return home, demands that have fell on deaf ears until now they were compelled to take up arms to fight so they can compel the government of the DRC to negotiate and allow their communities that have been languishing in refugee camps to return home. Okay, Mr. Nerengabo, I'm going to go back to um, uh, Felix Nahinda in uh, Tilburg because obviously uh, the conversation and what's going on is multi-layered. It's about ethnicity, it's about geography, it's about language, and it's about culture, certainly in this part of the world. And we will talk about that a little bit later in the programme. Let me just bring it up to speed in terms of the 2009 peace deal that was reached, that failed in 2012. What do you think the underlying issues there as to why the groups could find a peace deal, uh, Mr. Nahinda, but then it all sort of fell apart? Why? I mean, much of it, if I was to pick one word in terms of why we keep having a type of violence and, uh, and conflict repeating in DRC, I would really more talk about one single word being enforcement. Much of it can be related to enforcement, which has always been lacking. You have had quite very many uh, intra-Congolese dialogues between the government and armed groups. Many armed groups, by the way, keep always saying, repeating, last week, uh, the UN did issue a report of human rights violations in all of its four eastern provinces, Ituri, North Kivu, South Kivu, and Tanganyika. And it's very important always to keep that in mind that the violators of human rights are very much multiple. In fact, M33 was among the, the lowest, according to that UN report, which doesn't justify anything, but it's a very important point to keep in mind. So, but much of it really, whether we are talking about Domestic issues. The government has had uh, meetings in Goma, in Nairobi, in Addis Ababa with armed groups. There were arguments uh, made, but enforcing them either were enforced partially or never enforced at all. That's one thing. And the second is really the capabilities of enforcing it. Part lies and the will, the political will to enforce them. And part of the blame sometimes tends to be to quite a multiplicity of actors. Of course, the troubles are in the Congo, and Congo bears the government, any government in place in Congo bears the responsibility to protect citizens and provide for the basic needs. But there are being the, the, the issues of cooperation around the global community, the national community, mm -hmm. under the agency of the UN, but also regional countries. Uh, depending on the politics of, moment, of the moment, there have always been weaknesses in enforcing any given arguments uh, agreed. And because of that, then, you tend to get 
always renew the violence, renew the belligerency by diverse armed groups with diverse political agendas. Okay. Uh, many of the issues have always remained constant over the last three decades, more or less. Uh, uh, can I bring in Akito uh, here? Obviously, you know, the, um, the, the DRC's government ordered the R Rwandan ambassador uh, to leave. Rwanda uh, is stated as saying that they regret it. I mean, do they really regret it? Is there, is there any room for manoeuvre in terms of talking, or are reports like this that are authored by the UN a sticking point in any starting point for a conversation? I think, Robert, this is a very crucial point. We're talking now, my people in the east of my country, they've been a victim of a number of atrocities. And uh, what I heard from Katete uh, from Rwanda is a very shame that somebody tried to manipulate the story in international media by fabricating things that are not correct. But historically, the Congo, when you had independence, we had more than 352 tribes all that well-organized tribe. We welcome a foreigner from Rwanda. Rwanda has been a very unstable country for years. And he cannot deny that. We have a group of Rwandese who still don't want to go back till now because of Paul Kagame is still being a tyrant regime for them. People who call themselves Democratic Forces for Liberation of Rwandans. These are a Hutu group. They are not willing to go back, and the Congos welcome them. We have them in the country, and it is a story where Rwanda has been manipulating the international community, like I heard from somebody calling himself from law, a lawyer from Rwanda who's manipulating the story. It's a very, very serious case here. We're talking well, about people's lives. Very serious allegation. They are heard from somebody from Kigali. Speaking international, this is Al Jazeera. A million people are listening. Well, and indeed, and of course, you know, you have your point of view, sir. So does our guest in, in Rwanda. Let, 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 let me bring in. Let me bring in. Let me bring in. Let me bring in. Let's bring on our Rwandan guest. Finish my point. Don't interrupt me. I didn't interrupt you. I'm sorry. It's a very serious comment you made in international television about misleading people with statements. You know, you don't have evidence of that. Okay. You're going to go back to the history. We welcome around these people as a refugee. Your country has been a stable nation for years. You're killing yourself. We've got history of genocide in your country. We see people not like each other. You're hating each other. And the Congo, we welcome you. We accepted you. That's the place you live as a safe heaven. Now, you are using this excuse by killing Congolese people in your return because you have a support from the United Kingdom. UK has been in the centre of providing enough support, including arms and the different training to your army groups. And you're you using this as an influence. To Mr. Tungoma, you actually mentioned the, the, the British angle before. So let, let's, let's bring in, let's bring in our, our, our guest from Kigali. No, no, you've, you've, had, you've had enough of that say for the moment. I want to bring in uh, Nuringabo here uh, to actually respond to what Mr. Tungomo said. Um, that, you know, you've been, the, the, Rwanda has been disingenuous. I mean, Paul Kagame has tweeted on Monday that he wants to hold dis uh, discussions with the UN, Security, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He too wants to discuss the ongoing uh, uh, rise in tensions and wants to de-escalate tensions, he says. What should we read then into this conversation between the Secretary General and the President in Kigali? Many points have been said. One of them... Uh, as you can see, my colleague is, is trying to sanitize the group called, he called Force of Rwanda Liberation FDLR. Now, it is true this FDLR is a group in Congo, and indeed, we've been pointing out that the DRC government, the DRC army, is working alongside this group. And as you can see here from my colleague, they believe this is a legitimate group. Now, this legitimate group that he, this group that he's trying to make legitimate is on the UN list 
as a terror organization is on the everyone list. Some of its leaders are being tried in international courts. So this is actually a group of people, remnants of people, who committed genocide in Rwanda, were defeated, fled to DRC, and continued to attack Tutsi communities in DRC. And from my colleague's statement, indeed they, he, he, they are willing to continue to working with them. And this is the primary uh, quarrel that Rwanda has with the DRC. Using the support of the DRC, this group shells bombs on Rwandan territory. So Rwanda keeps asking the DRC to stop collaborating with FDLR, which is internationally recognized as a terror genocidal organization. Okay. It's I, not me. I, I, I can see our guest in London. Come in. You are telling Congo what to do. You have the audacity to say this, Mr. Katende. That's a very serious allegation. You, Rwanda, have to tell Congo what to do with people who are seeking protection in our country. You speak this in the international community. You speak to a lawyer. Can you see how you people breaching the rule? You have the density, even in the international community, to minimize the value of another nation by it imposing them what you want them to do. That's a serious allegation. Those people don't want to come back to your country because you're targeting them. You're killing them. They are majority. And the Rwanda has a track record of killing those people, Mutu, including the Tutsi. I was in school with many Rwandese people, including those people you kill, you call yourself Tutsi. We welcome you. We accepted you. In the outcome, this is what you've got to do for our people. How many years Congolese people have to be killed okay. because we are helping you? You've been given enough support from the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. Now, you're minimizing this value. The value of Commonwealth is not to have the countries that are killing other people. And we are calling Commonwealth and including British people to listen to this. We are supporting the war criminal country in the folk government, including yourself, Katende. You don't see the value of protecting human rights. These Congolese people deserve a better life, and our nation have to live in harmony in our border. You can't use these excuses to kill Congolese. You fabricated okay. M23 by mentioning the M23. Let me just bring in. Let me just bring in Felix. Let me just bring in Felix. You have a track record. Let me just bring in Felix Dahinda here in uh, Tilburg. Uh, obviously, you're hearing both sides, uh, Felix, and, and it's very polarised. Uh, each side, whether they are pro-Congo or, or pro-Rwanda have their own point of view. It's an endless cycle of violence that the media, that the UN has tried to mediate. How difficult is this position now if, if the international community are not listening, are not, are not coming to um, the aid of the very civilians that are actually the victims in all of this on those border areas? It, it is very difficult. Uh, keep in mind, of course, it's always very difficult to compartmentalize the discussions about security in Eastern DRC. Keep in mind that the last conversation probably you had on this channel were around demonstrations against the UN presence in the DRC. You have quite one of the biggest UN presence, globally speaking, in Eastern DRC, in DRC in general. But it has been quite very difficult to, to, to find a solution because the issues are multi-layered and many issues require quite some kind of large investment by diverse actors at different levels to tackle the issue. I keep always saying that there is a need for really a comprehensive ways of looking at different things. Keep in mind the fact that we are talking about insecurity in North people today, but that part of the country, based again on the report from the UN Human Rights Body that I was quoting at the beginning of this conversation, leads violations by several dozens of armed groups, which are still very much active. So disarming all of those armed groups, 
including M23, of course, should be a priority for any actor, including uh, the Congolese state, of course, but also partners, global or regional or otherwise. Uh, there have been a Luanda kind of roadmap copies. There have been a Nairobi communicate which oversees the military and political solution. All of those, if they were to be taken seriously, would be beginning with those solutions at least. But you'll never have a solution when you address one single issue. There are issues that have been lingering around for the last 30 plus years that need to be addressed at the local level, belonging, identity, land-related sure. issues, and belonging, but also yeah, there are regional issues around. As we are speaking, of course, we are talking about Rwanda DRC, but keep in mind that as we are speaking, there are Burundian forces in the whole plateau of South Kivu operating with the invitation of the Congolese government and Ugandan forces operating against ADA. Okay. All of these are factors that you need to keep in mind in looking at the solution, how that can be even more comprehensive in bringing back lasting peace that more or less uh, builds peace for all communities involved, sure. including those are more or less rejected. Let me just bring in Mr. Otonga. There are many elements and many issues to bring. Let's just, let's just talk about the demonstrations we've seen over the weekend um, and about the approaches to international mediation. Let's just take this conversation in, in, in a different direction as well. That, uh, as you say, you're not very happy with the British. The French uh, in the region have also left in parts of Mali and Chad because of uh, their relationships with uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we saw in the demonstrations at the weekend the call for Russia to get involved by some members of the public that were on the street there, Mr. Tongomo. If you're not happy with Western powers and you're not happy with the UN, is there a role for Russia? I think uh, that's not what I think. Uh, people in Congo, they have got no choice at the moment. They're looking their way forward. But I can tell you how to finish this war. It's going to be two minutes. If, for example, Arsenal is going to stop promoting Rwanda and the British is going to stop supporting Rwanda, giving them the arms, and also supporting them as a member of Commonwealth, that will be the end of the war. We don't need Russia. It's two minutes. Okay. And I'm calling British people to listen. A million people have been killed because they are supporting Rwanda. That's all. And I'm very sorry I have to finish this, Robert. When Mr. Katende mentioned, we have to recognize this. There are more than 100 different type of reports confirming that Rwanda has been in the center of killing Congolese and also supporting M23. It's a Rwandese army group, and there's evidence for that. He's a lawyer. I believe he cannot challenge that report. If he never come across that, I'll be more than happy to send them to him. Mr. And also, we have to make it clear for the stability and the future strategy on the peace region and region. Our president, Mr. Kapchisekedi, has tried his best to find a way, a peaceful way to find a way forward for this war. It has never been a solution because Rwanda is still using a British influence. Okay, and then British let, me give the, let me give the final word then to Mr. Nerengarbo in Kigali. Let me, let me give the last word to Mr. Nerengarbo. Tongovo, you've had your say. I'm bringing in Mr. Nerengarbo. Please for your say. I'm bringing in Mr. Nerengarbo for his say in Kigali. You know, it's a very heated subject. But I want to ask you whether international mediation is required to try and solve the problems between the two countries, between uh, Kigali and Kinshasa, because obviously the two capitals need to start talking to each other, don't they? Regardless of what's going on, it's obviously very heated. It's obviously displacing thousands of people in the region. And the two governments need to talk to each other, don't they, face to face? Mr. Moderator, this, uh, the, the, no, no, no country, a, a problem between two countries 
or a problem with, within countries is not solved by foreign uh, uh, interference. We have a MONUSCO there, which is made of several uh, countries. They haven't solved the problem. And also, this gentleman is speculating too much about British, Britain, France, and UN, and so on. But the problems of the DRC and the solutions of the DRC are within the DRC. The, the, the demands are simple. M23 means, means March 23rd, 2009. It's an agreement that says all Congolese who speak in Rwanda, who are in refugee camps in Uganda and Rwanda, must return home peacefully. All soldiers of M23 must be mobilized and be integrated in the Congolese army and others demobilized. Community, Rwanda, Rwanda speaking communities that are actually Congolese, full Congolese citizens must be accepted and not discriminated against. There has been lack of political will. The DRC has been scapegoating Rwanda and I hear Tongoma has pushed the envelope to scapegoating the UK and and everybody, okay. but the real issue in the DRC is that, remember, what my colleague Felix was trying to say is the following. When you see reports of human rights violations in the DRC, M23, and I want this to, to emphasize this, M23 is the least violent, the most violent group in DRC today is the Congolese army, followed by FDLR, which is a group made of genocide perpetrators that okay. are working hand in hand the Congolese army. Now, if the day until the Congolese government accepts that you could speak in Rwanda, look Rwandan, and actually be Congolese, because the border, when it was being divided, it was done arbitrarily without considering where people come from, until the DRC understands that, they will have conflict. And then they will continue to scapegoat Rwanda and Obviously, scapegoating the UK and scapegoating the US and the and, UN and so and on. And there, Mr. Nerengabo, we do have to leave it because obviously this is a conversation that is going to go on for a very long time. We can't solve it in half an hour, but I do appreciate all of my guests uh, for joining us from Kigali, London and Tilburg. Thank you to Gatete Nerengabo, Okitu Tongomo and Felix Dahinda. Thank you as well for watching. You can see the programme again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. We're at AJ Inside Story. From me, Sahil Rahman, and the entire team here in Doha, thank you very much for your time and your company. Welcome back. That was our inside story uh, dealing with the current security and political situation in the eastern uh, regions of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, uh, of course, we're here at the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, November 6, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with our concluding segment for today's program.
got somebody else on your mind. I want you to please, 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 baby. Ah, let me down.
The Sound of uh, 100 Proof, uh, Aged in Soul, uh, with the track entitled Everything Good is Bad. And before that, uh, we heard the sound of Etta James with the tune entitled Let Me Down Easy. And uh, the COP27, the United Nations Climate Conference, is taking place uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. It began earlier today. Uh, we're going to listen to a report uh, on uh, COP27. Hi, I'm Femi Okay. On November the 6th, the world's biggest climate conference kicks off in Egypt. It is hosted by an African nation, which means that Africa's priorities for the UN climate conference, well, they should be front and center. And that is our discussion for today's stream. We are suffering. We rely on livestock for our livelihood, but you can see that because of the drought, the cows are dying and some are unable to stay on their feet. We are now unable to take care of our children. We used to farm and harvest crops to feed our children before the drought affected us. Then after the rain failed, we moved to Mogadishu a week ago, and now we are settled at a makeshift camp not far from here. People in conflict zones are fighting over land and water. If natural resources were available everywhere, there wouldn't be any conflict. But when there is scarcity, there's conflict. And the reason for said scarcity is climate change. So many challenges for different regions around the African continent. How will they be attacked? How will they be handled? Wanjira, Osman, Hamira, so good to have you here as we do a curtain raising, raiser for what is being known as Africa COP. That's a lot of pressure for Sharm el-Sheikh and Egypt. Let's see if they can live up to that pressure. Wanjira, so good to have you here on the stream. Please say hello to our viewers around the world. Tell them who you are, what you do. Hi, Femi. Thanks for having me. Wanjira Masai, Managing Director for Africa and Global Partnerships at the World Resources Institute. Good to have you. Othman, nice to see you here on the stream. Welcome. Please say hello to our viewers around the world. Tell them who you are and what you do. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm Osman Sheikh, Head of Egyptian Association of Sustainable Development which is non-governmental organization, and also I'm climate adaptation expert in the field of agriculture, uh, especially in Upper Egypt, I mean Luxor area. Good to have you. Hamira, welcome to the stream. Nice to have you. Tell us about what you do, who you are, the expertise you're bringing to this conversation. Uh, thank you very much, Femi. My name is Hamira Kotsinje, and I'm a climate justice activist from Uganda. Um, I am... Um, I am also the co-founder of uh, Climate Justice Africa, and in Climate Justice Africa, we deal with sharing skills on adaptation, on how to survive the climate crisis, and also, um, much as the climate crisis and climate change have their own terms allocated to them, yeah. so many of us, for example, from my country, we actually are self-taught, all the activists are self-taught, yeah. so I try to break down climate change and the climate crisis and what we are facing to our daily lives for my people and also for activists on the continent. And I have done that since uh, January this year. 
and that was an awesome epic introduction i hope you can deliver on all of those promises all right ah it sounds like cop already can we deliver on what we promise all right so if you are joining the conversation you're live right now the comment section is here i know you have things to say about climate change climate action across the african continent what is needed when countries from around the world are getting together to talk what do they need to talk about? Uh, Wanjira, Othman, uh, Hamira, there are conversations that happen within COP and there are conversations that happen outside. The exciting ones are the ones that have happen outside. We're going to have the outside conversation. The priority for you, Wanjira, for the constituency that you represent, what is the most important job that has to get done in Egypt? In Egypt, we need to reaffirm our commitment to deliver. It's about implementation. Several commitments were made in COP26, commitments that have been broken one after the other. So this is the COP to reestablish trust. This is the COP to demonstrate accountability on finance for climate adaptation, on finance for for uh, loss and damage, and of course, on delivering on ambitious mitigation targets. Last COP, we agreed to come back to this COP with ratcheted, with, with a stronger uh, mitigation agendas to reduce emissions, especially the wealthiest countries of the world. Those are the three key uh, things we'll be looking yeah. out for. Uh, Othman, I'm just wondering what happens at these gatherings where people promise so much we are going to we're going to make sure that we don't cut down any more rainforest we're going to give you so many billions and then it doesn't happen do people just get high on their own company what happens yeah what i would like to say here uh, that uh, i'm talking let's say uh, on behalf of uh, smallholder farmer and 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 our egypt or sometimes in in africa uh all farmers suffering from climate change. Uh, I would like to introduce a little bit about the difference between climate adaptation and the climate mitigation. We are here in, in Africa. We, uh, uh, that we did not contribute more than 3% uh, of uh, total emissions in, in, in comparison of all, all the global emissions. So when we talk about climate change in Africa, we should focus on adaptation, not mitigation. Uh, uh, mitigation is costly uh, for smallholder farmer or small poor people. Uh, mitigation is very important. Uh, the idea of uh, climate change is very complicated for all people. Uh, we are in, in the Egyptian Association for Sustainable Development. Uh, we try to uh, introduce the idea of climate change and the climate ad adaptation in simple way, like uh, comic theater. A comic theater can introduce the, this complicated idea in simple way. Uh, so it, it will be uh, very important if we create a bridge between uh, uh, different countries, developing countries from side and developed countries from other side. Okay. This bridge will transfer the, the climate adaptation knowledge. All right, Osman, uh, I, I feel that Himira wants to have a chat with you. Himira, go ahead. Um, no, as um, as talking of, I was listening to Osman talk about adaptation, and it makes so much sense uh, what he just said. And I'm thinking that uh, most of us in the global south have 
I like have gone past uh, adaptation and now we're like at loss and damage reparations and we actually need to receive uh, compensation from this COP27 and starting from, sorry, I took over Osman, but uh, what I wanted to say is uh, COP27 should be focusing on three keys and that is reduction of emissions, helping countries to prepare for and, and dealing with the climate breakdown and the breakdown that we are facing right now already. For example, they didn't show my country, but my country has lost close to like 4,000 people to the climate-induced uh, crisis and just because of flooding, famine, and landslides. And so we need to also secure technical support for developing countries. So to add, and to address this, we need to receive climate finance, a loss and damage reparation, and a mechanism on payment, on how payment is going to be All right, Tamira, I see, you, I see you have your list ready for COP27. There's something that I want to do, and that is that uh, I, earlier this year, I was at the United Nations Environment Program anniversary for 50 years. They've been in existence for 50 years, and they were looking ahead to what the next 50 years might look like for the Earth. In a discussion, I was with a climate activist known as Vanessa Nakate, and Vanessa um, did something really interesting. She talked to the ministers in the room, and there were lots of very high-level ministers in the room, and she asked them a question. I feel that Vanessa sums up perfectly what you, Angira, Offman, and Hamira have been talking about, but Vanessa put the ministers on the spot. Have a look at my laptop. Let's see what happens. Especially the ministers from the Global North. Do you think that the people who are least responsible for the climate crisis and the ones who are suffering some of the worst impacts of this crisis deserve our help? Thumbs up. Higher up. So all of you believe that the people who are suffering right now deserve our help. So I'll ask a second question. Will your countries commit to putting money and finding loss and damage for those countries at COP27? <laughs> now that's where the problem is. My first question is like your statements. You're promising us. You're talking about what you're going to do. And my second question is about real action. Loss and damage is happening right now. We can't adapt to the loss of our cultures, the loss of our identities, the loss of our histories. We can't adapt to extinction or to starvation. We cannot adapt to loss and damage. So Vanessa put the ministers on the spot, but I'm not sure that in Egypt in a week's time that the money will be there. Wanjira, how do you get the money for the global south and the developing world that is suffering right now. There are droughts, there are floods, people are having trouble getting to work, the climate is intense, or a lot of the different regions around Africa. How does the money turn up? Will it turn up? Well, the money should turn up, Femi, so that's obviously not the question. When we needed money, especially in the global north, to shore up economies after COVID, money turned up in the trillions, not even in the billions, in the trillions. So this is about empathy. It's about um, solidarity. 
one of my really dear colleagues, Anuraba Gosh, just recently said something that hit it right on the spot. He said, we are living in unempathetic times. This is what it's about, because the commitment, we, everybody knows what needs to be done, and that's why Vanessa's um, exercise was so powerful. That activity demonstrating that we know exactly what we need to do, but we're living in unempathetic times and have created essentially parallel sets of facts. And in a funny way, they coexist. We saw it in that room full of ministers who know very well what to do. So this lack of empathy is something I hope we can crack through. I expect climate activists, civil society, and that's why what you said, Femi, about the outside is so important. It's about making sure that the energy and the, the sense of urgency makes it to the inner sanctum of those negotiating rooms. Because in those negotiating rooms, they're negotiating commas and full stops. They do not have the heart and the empathy and that is required at that moment to make those decisions. It's not about the money not being there. Of course the money is there. Often what will you be able to do? What will you be able to achieve for the smallholder farmers that you represent? Yeah, what I would like to add here, it's, it's uh, not uh, only uh, the matter of money. I, I, I mean here it can be also uh, knowledge transfer. Uh, knowledge transfer from developed country to developing country can support uh, to face the negative effect of uh, climate change, uh, especially for those uh, smallholder farmers uh, in, in Africa. Uh, I know that technology and knowledge transfer is also meaning money, but I think uh, developed country uh, can support by technology and uh, uh, it will be more, uh, I mean, welcomed from uh, developed country rather than the, the money or the cash, especially in this uh, situation that uh, facing the, all the world. So uh, uh, transfer technology and knowledge, I mean here improved seeds, improved uh, technologies of agriculture machineries, uh, 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 irrigation technology uh, to uh, reduce the negative effect of water scarcity, especially in eastern part of Africa. There are a lot of technology that can support and can help smallholder farmers. Uh, and uh, develop the country uh, uh, can help through, uh, let's say, academia, through private sector, right. through public-private so, partnerships. So, so maybe it's not just about money. It's, it's about bring us your experts, your engineers, uh, so that you may have this in the developing world and you've got tech and maybe because right. you are impacting the global south then you can give us knowledge amira go ahead yes uh, so but i would also think that as as they bring us the experts and whatever they are giving us is they shouldn't be exploiting us because what the global north is doing right now is putting everything, uh, doing everything that is going to benefit them the most. When it comes to... For example, up example, Hamira. When it comes, for example, when it comes to closing up coal wells, when it comes to closing up oil wells, they are doing their best and they are trying to show they are working. For example, the other, the, a few weeks back, there was an, a sanction on the eco-pipeline, of, of course, which I'm not supporting and I'm against, but the global north finds it very easy to put pressure on the global south and shift all the hard times and the 
production of uh, raw materials to us, and they benefit from the finished goods and of which the profit, they take the profit, they take the finished produce, they take everything, and we are suffering. So like Wangari said, they have a lot of money. Their banks ha have spent spent $4.6 trillion. Okay. Dollars All right, so our year. audience wants Oil. to talk to you as well, Hamira. Thank you. Thank you for, for adding that. All right, so yeah, Joseph right. is on YouTube. Um, Osman, hold tight for one moment. I'm, I'm going to share the conversation with our viewers right now. Joseph, uh, Bishop Joseph is on YouTube. Over 200 elephants, thousands of domestic animals like cows and goats have died within a few months in Kenya because of the drought. More testimony from our viewers. Anita says, I'm in Nigeria. The floods are affecting the low-lying states. Um, uh, this is interesting from Peter. Mitigation and adaptation are two sides of the coin. People in Africa are doing great work with water harvesting projects. Wanjira, thoughts about positive projects that are working in different parts of the continent? Absolutely. There's several bright spots that need to be amplified, that need to be expanded and grown. You, you mentioned water harvesting. We need to work on irrigation and technology that allows for us to continue to produce food at times when the rains have failed like now. We need to be able to harvest water in places where we now see not only uh, human suffering but wildlife and livestock. So people are losing their livelihoods and, of course, wildlife losing their lives. This is a huge uh, challenge, and that's why building adaptive capacity is so important. This is why we have to invest in all the technologies, including solar. One of the things that we are seeing, uh, Femi, is that young people on the African continent are innovating like never before. Solar uh, technologies are on the rise. Financial technologies and how to transfer small amounts of money to, to the farthest reaches. We are ready for investment. What's missing is the resources to invest in these entrepreneurs. Oh, so we do yeah. have an issue at the moment of finance. All right, so let me bring in Mo Ibrahim. He is the head of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, and he addressed that issue about finance. Where is the money going to come from? This is what he told us a couple of hours ago. Unfortunately, there is very little movement uh, from side of the Puyotas. Uh, they think of, of, of the contribution or the bridges they make as a charity, and that's a problem. The only way forward really is to let the market play its role here, and we must have a global carbon pricing. One of many ideas I'm sure will be discussed at COP27 in the next couple of days. There is something that I really have to talk about, and that is the activism that surrounds the UN Climate Conference always, and there have been problems with activists trying to get to Egypt to be part of COP27. Uh, we spoke to a number who had very similar issues with trying to actually just physically get into the country. This is what they told us. It has been a hassle trying to get to COP this year, and one of the biggest challenges has been getting badges as every request for a badge has emitted responses like there are limited badges available and the process has been really tedious. I personally had to go through some processes to get my badge. But there are many activists out there who don't have this privilege. And I hope that COP27 will be well inclusive. Logistics should not be a barrier 
and Egyptian authorities should try and substitute some of the basic needs of those attending courts. Youth activists attending courts should be given attention and be included in most of the strategic decisions that will be taken at COP27. These are the headlines that we're seeing in the last few days. Egyptian security arrests dozens ahead of COP27 Climate Summit Rights Group. Uh, I can't say enough how much protest activism is part of the essence of COP. What happens outside influences what happens inside. What happens inside influences what happens outside. Hey, Mira, are you going to COP27? Um, yes, I was able to secure a last-minute funding, and of course it's still half-funded. It's not yet fully funded, so I'll have still have issues in, in Egypt. But uh, like the activists earlier said, we have been having problems. I, I personally have been working on the budge, on the budge allocation group and on the working group on, with activists on, on the continent, yeah. and we have had issues. Of course, there was very few budgets allocated, and then there is very limited funding, and we have had so many major polluters. Uh, for example, we saw that the UK, who are actually major polluters, and also the ones holding... Uh, the climate hosting uh, for COP27 for last year actually not showing up. So we're having issues like that. And when we have uh, major polluters like that not showing up to COP, we have funders right. not actually availing so funds for activists to be there. The Prime Minister of the UK the is going, but I, I suspect that they will be sending a delegation. They they have to send a delegation. Let me just ask you this, often. We had a number of Egyptian guests who we uh, were delighted to have and part, as part of this conversation, and they all felt very uncomfortable about talking about Egypt as the host and the challenges they have regarding human rights, regarding being very comfortable with activists. What can you tell us about that? Uh, I'm talking from the side of farmers, uh, huh. and um, as, as a farmer, uh, I would like to encourage uh, the African uh, diplomatics and the Egyptian representative in COP27 to focus on climate adaptation and uh, uh, to find a way to uh, support the climate adaptation solution, uh, maybe by fund uh, or, or, or... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from a discussion about uh, COP27 that uh, just started earlier today in uh, the North African state of Egypt. And uh, we're going to be winding down uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, November 6, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with uh, the music of uh, legendary uh, jazz guitarist Grant Green. Uh, we're going to go back uh, to uh, the original recordings, the first recordings from uh, 1959 with uh, Grant Green. Let's listen in. 
This is Abayomi Azikaway signing off and have a beautiful week.